How come you're a suspect? The two killers of 16-year-old Brianna Jai have just been sentenced. We now can tell you uh, that they are Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe, both of them 16 years old. Um, there we have it, the sentence handed down there by Mrs. Justice Yip uh, for the murder of Brianna Jai. Please take the defendants to the cells. So we're recording this a couple of days after Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe were named as Brianna's killers. I'm told they would spend at least 22 and 20 years in jail for their crime. Yeah, and since our episode on Friday, there have been a couple of developments, Caroline. The family of Scarlett Jenkinson issued a statement just a few hours after the sentencing hearing, which is really quite unusual for a defendant's family to do this. But they said they wanted to issue a statement to say that they're truly sorry for her actions which they described as beyond their worst nightmares. Yeah, interestingly as well, Liz, in that statement, um, they also agreed, didn't they, with the decision to name Scarlett. There's been quite a lot of talk about whether they should have been named or not. They're 16 years old. Mrs Justice Yip took the decision to name them. But they said in that statement, part of their statement, was that they agreed with that decision. They also thanked Brianna's mum, Esther, for what they called her selflessness and her compassion. And you might remember, I mean, it was hard to forget, that after they were initially convicted in December, Esther Jai stood on the steps outside court and made extraordinary comments where she urged people not to vilify the families of the two killers of her daughter and, she said, to show some empathy for their families. So today, we wanted to get into what might have led these two teenagers to kill a schoolgirl in this way. And we're going to also take a look at the role that autism played in the trial. And we're going to bring you some more of Esther Jai's extraordinary words and her campaign, which she has just launched, to stop schoolchildren being able to access social media apps and harmful content online. Welcome to episode 14, So Many Lives Ruined. So Liz, we have got a lot to get through really today because since our episode on Friday when Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe were handed down their sentences and their anonymity was lifted, there's been a lot of reaction and we wanted to try and examine just some of what's been said. Yes, and before we get into that and all the reactions from Friday, we wanted just to take you back a bit to the trial And one of the things we wanted to talk about that we've had quite a lot of emails about was the role that autism played during the case. And um, we couldn't really discuss this at length during the trial, obviously for prejudicial reasons. But because we've had so many questions, we decided we'd tackle it now the trial's over. So we know that Eddie Radcliffe was diagnosed with autism before the trial started. And we also know that he stopped verbal communication apart from, we think, with just his mum. Scarlett Jenkinson was also diagnosed before the trial with autism traits. But on Friday, we heard that diagnosis had changed and she doesn't have autism. But for the trial, this meant the judge, Mrs Justice Yip, 
put in place what's called special measures. And Liz, this took like quite a number of forms in the trial. Just So just to outline these measures that were put in place by Mrs Justice Ship, she essentially allowed them not to come to court every day. Um, they were allowed to watch the proceedings from the rooms inside their secure units where they were being looked after and um, the trial was streamed to them via video link. Some days they also had fidget toys with them in the dock and Eddie Ratcliffe was seen doing crosswords and Sudoku at times in the dock as well. The judge also allowed them to give evidence in a slightly unusual way. Scarlett Jenkinson was allowed to have a curtain around her when she was giving her evidence in chief, which meant that she wasn't distracted by people in the public gallery or the press in the press benches and all her evidence was directed at the jury. And Eddie Ratcliffe was able to give his evidence in this, you may remember, in the really unusual way. Yeah, so we know he'd been diagnosed with selective mutism, so the judge allowed him to type out his answers. The barristers were allowed to ask him questions, and he'd type them out, and the intermediary sat next to him read them out. And also, Liz, when he initially made his plea, that was also unusual, wasn't it? Yeah, so he was allowed to write not guilty down on a piece of paper and hold it up for the court to see. So we wanted to speak to an expert about all of this to try to address some of your questions and we were really pleased that Dr Carol Stott came onto the podcast. She's a psychologist, she's also an expert witness so she knows how the courts work and she's an expert in autism. So I know you followed the podcast uh, from its inception really, I know you followed the Lucy Letby trial and now I think you've also been following this one, the trial of the two teenagers who are now convicted, as you know, of killing Brianna Jai. Autism's come up quite a lot in this trial. I wonder what you thought of some of the evidence as it was being as it was being revealed, particularly the messages actually um, between the two of them, and what that what that told you as an expert in this. You know, a lot of the things that were, were coming across was how literal he seemed to take some things, um, how routinized he appeared to be. So his references, for example, to, I can't remember the exact words, but think, references to, well, I can't do that now because I'm eating or, you know, things that clearly would be a little unusual, typically, and not that unusual for somebody with autism who's routinized, you know. So that, that very much came across that those sorts of considerations of his were very autistic-like. In terms of the emotional input as well, or the lack of it in a sense, I think what was interesting as well, particularly again for him, was how he seemed to articulate that he, he couldn't remember how he felt. He couldn't remember what emotions he was feeling at the time. And that sounds, A, I guess, very unusual, and B, rather cold. You know, it, it's the it's the kind of thing one might associate perhaps more with a psychopathic personality, with somebody who doesn't feel the emotion or enjoys it almost when it's a negative thing. But that very much fitted with the characteristic anyway, the characteristic presentations that one sees in autism. And it's a lot more to do with the feeling that the person or the difficulty that the person has in identifying for themselves that emotion. So it's it's not always that they don't feel it, it's that they can't articulate it, identify it and communicate it. To go back a little bit to your first point, Carol, um, about that message, and that message really resonated with a lot of the listeners as well as with Liz and I, I think. Basically, I can't kill her on a school night. Mm. It, it's almost like you can't deal with more than one thing at a time. Is is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And 
I guess what we need to be clear about, generally within the autism field, the focus that people have on particular issues, particular routines, things that they do regularly and won't do things easily outside of that routine. It's very common. It's not common to be in this kind of scenario. So within the autistic population, it's not common for people, you know, clearly to be involved in this level of uh, criminal activity. But given that he has been, it's not that surprising that alongside of it, he's evidencing a lot of autistic traits. And whilst to, you know, to, to, to somebody listening to this who's not as familiar with people with autism, it would sound extremely bizarre. And it is unusual, you know, and it's an unusual context, even for a person with autism. But the regularity, the routinized thing is very typical of autism and not that unusual for him to say it in that sense. And there, I think there was another message where she writes, you know, well, I'm really excited for Saturday. And he says... Oh, what's happening Saturday? And she says, killing Brianna. And he says, oh, I forgot. And she's kind of saying, well, how can you forget? And he says, oh, I'm having my tea, sorry. And, and what was interesting about that was that I know that these um, the voices were voiced by actors, but the way it was voiced did convey, and I, I guess it was a, a bit like that, did convey within the message that he he didn't kind of convey it with a sense of surprise. Oh, my God, I'd forgotten that. It was, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten. That, that is characteristic of autism. Would his autism make him more vulnerable to being manipulated? So, you know, we know that Scarlett recognises that he's autistic because she says in a message, mm. oh, you know, like almost like teases him for being autistic and suggests to him that he ought to get assessed. Yeah, she tells him to get a diagnosis. Yeah, so she, she recognises that he's autistic. And then, you know, I wonder whether, you know, you know, she writes that murder plan, you know, that awful murder plan that she actually wrote down and yeah. sent to him. Now, would that, you know, like Caroline says, there's no way you can excuse what's happened. But the feeling is that, you know, she kind of devised the plan and he carried it out. Now, would his autism have affected or you know would he have been easy, more easily manipulated to do that for her because of his autism there's a general understanding that people with autism are more vulnerable to suggestion partly because of the lack of understanding in a sense so and partly because of wanting to please and i think my recollection is that he he articulated that on occasion he didn't want to get in trouble um which sounds again sounds really quite strange given the context there were huge things for which he was going to get in a lot more trouble than the things that he was articulating being in trouble about you know people with autism are no more likely than anyone else to to commit crime we, we believe they're more likely to be caught perhaps but not more likely to commit and, and i mean minor crime now more likely to be caught is there a point at which there's a plan he's agreed to the plan he's brought the knife the plan says this therefore that's what I do. Yeah. The difficulty that I have, and I guess anyone else working with people with autism would have, is that all of that is the case, but not usually in these circumstances. That That's the thing that's really kind of difficult to get a hold of. Because if we were talking about, you know, there's a plan in place, it's not a very good choice that the person's making, it's not a great plan to be following, but I did it because that's what the plan says, then I would say that's really common within the context of autism. But the plan isn't, of course, usually, to be so violent, so destructive. 
Um, and so I guess the evidence in that sense isn't isn't there for us to say that a person with autism would be more likely than anybody else. There's a, there's a sense which, in general, they are. Do you see do you see what I mean? Yes, yeah. because because there's a plan and there's an agreement to do the plan, then that feels something that can't be deviated from. Would that would that be simplistic? Uh, no, that's not simplistic, and that's very much the case in general for for autistic people. There's a point as well uh, where he's very agitated when Brianna cancels the mm. plan for them two to meet earlier. two weeks earlier. And he's quite agitated by that and he wants confirmation before the Saturday when they do kill her that it's still happening. He's seeking sort of confirmation that she's still coming. What people sometimes think it's related to is the difficulty that the person has in what's referred to as executive function. And what that means is executing... Um, a plan of action. Their difficulty in remembering, their difficulty in knowing when to start, their difficulty in knowing when to end. And talking now just about daily living activities, really. And so what happens is that the person makes a very detailed plan. They might have it written down, they might have it very much in their mind because it's rehearsed and they've practiced it and practiced it and practiced it. And then somebody changes it. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? And it's that that then causes the distress. Because they've got to replan, rewrite it all out, rethink all of the executive function things, um, you know. But I, I should say as well, I guess before we go any further, for people with autism listening, this is not something that's characteristic of autism. I think I said it at the beginning, but, you know, none of the things that we're suggesting here mean that a person with autism provides anything more of a greater risk of this kind of activity that we're talking about specifically. I wanted to mention that because we had some messages actually um, that we got and I really wanted to talk to you about because I really wanted to be fair and and accurate about this because we got we got a really interesting email from a listener who um, actually said she was offended by um, some of the core evidence and some of our reporting of that core evidence around autism, autistic traits, neurodiversity, socially awkward, which seemed to um, point in the direction that this was why. Mm. And of course, Carol, we're not saying that, are we? You're absolutely right. People with autism or neurodiversity are not intrinsically more likely, willing, able to indulge in this sort of thing, are they? Absolutely. And in general, talking about crime in general, they're less likely to be involved in engaging in crime, more likely than typical to be the victim of crime. So, you know, they're, they're no more likely than, the, the, than, than the, the person in the street to be the victim of this kind of crime. But generally speaking, across the broad range of criminal activity, there isn't evidence to suggest that somebody with autism is more likely to engage in it, but they're more likely than typical to be the victim of it. So once they once they were arrested and charged and we knew the trial was taking place, the court um, obviously put in some special measures in place for when they were during the trial to try and ensure that they got a fair trial. You know, for example, they were allowed fidget toys to keep them focused, I assume. Um, he was doing Sudoku and crosswords while he was sat in the dock. You know, the, the court hours were slightly truncated to help them um, cope with the long days of coming to court. They were allowed to watch proceedings from, by, via video link from the secure units where they were being held. Um, and the judge was quite mindful you know, that she wanted to ensure that they were able to engage in the process. Some people 
were quite critical of that, saying, you know, they're being treated with kid gloves. But the judge was very... Uh, she made numerous references to Brianna's family in the public gallery, saying, you know, please be sure that I have you at the forefront of my mind, but I have to ensure that these defendants are, you know, are treated fairly. What's kind of your thoughts on, on that, Carol, about these measures that were put in place? Well, to a very large extent, she has to do that. She's duty-bound. The judge is duty-bound to take account of anything that may increase the vulnerability of the individual. So if these weren't children, young people, if they were adults with a diagnosis of autism, there would still be a duty on the part of the, the criminal justice system specifically, but the judge in this instance, to take account of what those vulnerabilities mean in terms of a fair trial. So the, the idea is not to give the person anything extra, but to create an even playing field. So that, and the key phrase, I think, is so that they get ordinary access to justice. So if somebody is perhaps more fidgety because of a sensory need, which is quite common in autism, because of a communication need, anything that might impact on their access to a fair trial has got to be considered. And it's where some of my role as expert witness comes in sometimes because what I'm sometimes asked is whether the person with autism would perhaps benefit from the use of an intermediary or not or whether they need more time all of these things are requirements and and you know as well as their their access to justice as you rightly point out which is crucial is the fair trial nobody wants a retrial nobody wants a technicality nobody wants allegations that this wasn't done correctly that the, Brianna's family included in that exactly because what what isn't wanted is at the end of all of this there's a loophole that can be got through because something wasn't followed that would have made it more explicitly obvious that the trial had been fairly held you mentioned in your answer there, Carol, something we'd not asked you about, which I was really interested in, which is that I had never heard of selective mutism before this trial. And I wonder if you could just explain what it is, how it might come about, how it manifests. We know that Eddie Ratcliffe speaks to his mum. Significantly, he spoke a lot in his police interview. Yes, it, it, um, it happened after charge. Yeah, and it was only once he was charged that um, this selective mutism came into play. The way we phrase that sounds like we're being cynical. We're actually not, but I think some of the listeners are. It's actually an anxiety disorder. It's classed as an anxiety disorder. And it's triggered by a whole set of things which might be related to mood, to increasing anxiety in situations perhaps a little like this one, in other less extreme situations of anxiety. So a child perhaps transitioning from year six to year seven may be sufficiently anxious for them to be... And it's almost like a terror, becoming terrified of speaking. And it's very much more common, or it's, it's more common anyway, in the context of autism than in a typically developing child or adult. So people with autism are more prone to selective mutism. It's a separate disorder, but it is more common within autism than um, within the typical non-autistic population. And can it be treated? Does it go away? Is it, can it be permanent? It can be treated. It's not usually permanent. It's usually something that has periods of, of becoming more evident again. So if some, let, let's say an autistic person has a tendency towards selective mutism, then the likelihood is that that will come and go to an extent, depending on what's happening in that person's life. So it's not the kind of thing that you can treat out of existence, particularly, but it's the kind of thing that you can help the person with 
should it happen at a time when they need help with it. And of course, in, in a sense, and I don't mean this quite in this situation in, 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 in a way that it might be taken wrongly, but in some respects, it might be partially a choice. So it is an anxiety disorder. It is something that somebody's struggling with. And the choice is not to speak because speaking raises the anxiety. So a little bit like autism, a lot of your listeners, and I think quite rightly with autism, autistic listeners, will certainly not want to hear very much about treating autism because autism is who they are. And I'm not saying selective mutism is, is like that. But on the other hand, treatment is a little bit of a difficult concept within it because it's almost like saying to the person, you've got to speak now because we need you to, when in fact their choice is, I'm too anxious to speak, so I can't. The selective mutism um, also resulted in um, Eddie Ratcliffe giving his answers by typing them in court. And he actually pleaded not guilty by holding, writing it down and holding it up on a piece of paper. But also the nature of his answers, typed answers, this teenager is intelligent, highly intelligent. Sophisticated, um, sophisticated vocabulary. you said, yeah, yeah sophisticated, sophisticated language. Um, what, what, what were some of the phrases, Liz? Do you remember? That was it. He was he was asked a question about being afraid. You said you were scared. Were, were you afraid of her? Or a reference to afraid. And he replied by typing, that's an alternative synonym. He said at one stage, and this is a bit more than just vocabulary, I think, but he said something like, and I can't remember the exact words, but somebody had put to him that he had felt that he was the victim of betrayal, that he'd been betrayed. And what he said was that it wasn't a betrayal. It would only be a betrayal if he'd agreed to do something with her that he hadn't agreed. It was something else. And I can't remember the something else word, but it wasn't betrayal. It was something else that she kind of let him down, but it wasn't technically betrayal because he hadn't agreed a position. And that is a very high vocabulary kind of understanding of the word betrayal. Absolutely. One of the difficulties that, that I often have is having counsel understand and the court understand, as well as potentially the jury, as well as the public, is that a person with autism can be extremely bright in many instances, but still struggle with the most profoundly easy things. And it just looks a little bit, again, like a bit of a stretch. Well, how can this person... Think about computer hackers, for example, um, and how can this person be such that they can hack into the systems of security that the high-powered, secure, conscious companies have, and yet they can't answer simple questions about what they were doing last week? And it feels like when they can't answer the more simple questions that they're somehow lying or they're somehow trying to deceive. And it's very, very often not the case. It's that it's a particular thing that they have a skill in. They're very focused on that skill. It's a very niche skill. Their IQ might be extremely high and yet their practical day-to-day -day living skills are not. And, and even within the IQ test, even within the IQ tests, it's very, very common for somebody who's very able, for an autistic person who's very able, it's very common for that ability to be reflected in parts of an IQ or general ability test, whilst on other parts of it, their ability is really quite low. And we know in Eddie Ratcliffe's case that, you know, he was very focused on these mock exams, which he was obviously quite keen to pass at the same time that he's plotting this murder. And and then we know that since he's been um, held in this secure unit since his arrest, that he's passed eight GCSEs. 
Yeah, and and the the ability to do that. Can you imagine the the difficulties one would typically have in doing your review? I mean, it gets really hard to revise for anything if you're a bit worried about the latest football results or something. So imagine that going on in your life, and still being able to to kind of section it off and do what he's done. Again, is 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 a very autistic like trait. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So Carol's expert opinion of all of that, Liz, gives a bit of context, doesn't it, to what was put in place and why it was put in place. And we're really hopeful that it does answer some of the questions we were getting about what these measures meant and and why they were there. And in particular, one of the things that, you know, she wanted to stress and we wanted to highlight as well, it is far more common, as Carol said there, for people with autism to be the victims of crime rather than the perpetrators of crime. And in fact, some of what she said there, the judge reflected, Liz, didn't she, in some of her sentencing remarks? Yeah, she did. She said, although she accepted that Scarlett Jenkinson was the driver for this murder, she did say that Eddie Ratcliffe was capable of having his own opinions and saying no to her and that he wasn't in her control, is what the judge said. And she also said that his autism... Although it made him lack social skills, it didn't make him any less culpable for what had happened. No, absolutely. I mean, Carol had said this to us in her interview, that when she was watching the trial, listening to the trial and following the podcast about the trial, she said to us actually in our interview that she didn't think Scarlett Jenkinson did have autism. She could see the traits definitely in Eddie Ratcliffe. She didn't see it quite as clearly in her And in fact, we now know, Liz, that actually she doesn't have autism. She has got a diagnosis, but she doesn't have autism. No, we know um, from the psychiatrist, Dr Richard Church, that assessed Scarlett Jenkinson after her conviction that he'd changed his mind, essentially. At the beginning, he thought that she had autistic traits and ADHD. But subsequently, she'd confessed to him that she took part in the stabbing And he'd changed his mind about her and decided that she actually has a personality disorder and not autism itself. We'll be back after this short break. So we heard a little bit from our next guest on Friday when Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe were handed down their sentences. But Professor David Wilson, who's a criminologist at the University of Birmingham, was able to sit down with us for a longer chat over the weekend about just how disturbing he's found this case and what some of the evidence tells him about the motivations of the pair. Thank you for coming on the podcast, David. I know we've had you on before. You were kind in joining us on the trial of Lucy Letby, giving your insights into her crimes. And I know you've been following this case as well. I have, and thank you for inviting me back onto your podcast. I've been following this case because, as ever, there are a number of... um, interesting elements to it if you come from an academic background in uh, interpersonal violence. And I was intrigued by a number of things. Firstly, for me, this seems to be characterised as a classic folie a deux, 
folia de literally in French means a madness shared by two. Um, and sometimes that's very popularly described as there being a killer couple. And so, for example, you'll be familiar with killer couples in uh, in British history, uh, Fred and Rose West. And, and, and so what's interesting to me is that we've got that same context for Brianna's murder uh, in relation to this particular case. What I was intrigued about, and I, I can only... Um, suggest an answer to uh, the question I'm going to pose is within every folie a deux, there's always a dominant and a subservient, somebody who's in charge of the folie a deux. And in relation to Hindley and Brady, it was quite clearly Brady who was the dominant. It's a bit more complicated with the West. And I wondered uh, who was in charge in this case and I did feel, uh, and I'd be interested in both of your views, I, I did feel it was um, Girl X that seemed to be the one that was in charge. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Girl X, who we should say, obviously, we can name now that they've been sentenced, is Scarlett Jenkinson. And she certainly appeared from the evidence to be the one fueling, driving. You know, she's the one that downloads the kind of dark web browser. She writes the plan. Yeah, sends him a plan um, of what she wants to do. She's the one that initiates conversations on their messages about um, torture and real-life murder and, you know, t you know, taking body parts as souvenirs even. You know, it's one of the darkest kind of cases that I think... I've covered that probably you've covered as well, Caroline. Yeah, I think we need to be careful as we do that, you know, they're both equally guilty. And of course, he was the one of the two that went with a knife the, to the park that day. But I, I completely agree that if you look at the evidence of what she was texting, the kill list, the plan, mm. the dark web, what she was watching, the way she was sort of encouraging him to watch that, you would say... Yeah, in that case, was she the more dominant one? And that's interesting because, of course, having the woman being the more dominant within the folie a deux is, is not necessarily particularly common. The only other British example I can think about is Joanne Dennehy, the so-called Peterborough ditch murderer who murdered within a folie a deux with a man called Gary Stretch. Um, who was a physically physically much taller, bigger, broader than Joanne Dennehy, but he seemed to be at her bidding, and it was indeed her who committed, seems to have committed the crimes. So this would be very odd in itself. That's interesting you say that, because yeah. Scarlett Jenkinson is much, much slighter Tiny. individual. She's a very small, very diminutive in, in the dock, she appeared, and Eddie Ratcliffe, boy Y, is much taller, you know, looks much older than his 15, 16 years. You know, he's much bigger and much would have been much stronger than her. You're also quite right. It doesn't matter which of the two in particular um, struck the blows. Uh, they're both equally culpable under the law. I was also intrigued that he immediately shut down at that point. Um, he refused to speak. And I wondered to what extent that was merely a device to avoid 
being overwhelmed by the reality of what he'd done. Because quite clearly, within a folia de, once you separate the two, once the two become more um, disconnected from each other, there's a sudden realization by the subservient within the folia de about the enormity of what they have done when they were within that folia de. And you saw that with Hindley, you saw that with Rose West, for example, that they very much tried to distance themselves from the person who they had seen as dominating them at that time. In this case, David, and you, you've mentioned some other notorious, um, horrific criminals over the years of, of sort of couples, um, would it compare with those in the sense that they needed each other? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's one of those strange things, Caroline, that you can't answer definitively. But I do genuinely uh, sometimes wonder if Hindley had never met Brady, you know, how would her life have been different? It, it's like, it's the toxic combination of the two that leads to these appalling crimes. The in uh, Interestingly, I've mentioned to you some British Folia does. But again, when I was reading and following the case, I, I kept remembering an American Folia de, Leopold and Loeb, two young men, two very intelligent, very wealthy students in Chicago in 1924. They wanted to see if they could commit the perfect crime. And they're going to abduct and murder a 14-year-old boy to see if they could outsmart um, the authorities. And they were both quickly caught, um, and as I say, that their crime became um, a movie called The Rope, um, starring James Stewart. And I did feel uh, the echo there, because they, obviously in 1924, there's no internet, but there's this sense about, can we go places that nobody else has gone? Are we able to achieve something? Are we able to make our fantasy a reality. I definitely picked that up from Jenkinson, that she was trying to make fantasies from the dark web real. Well, that's really interesting you said that as well, because both of their defences included, you know, this this claim that, oh, it was her fantasy, I never thought she'd go through with it. And she said, oh, well, you know, it was just fantasy, I never thought he would go through with it. You know, so both of them suggested that it was all in their own almost like their own little bubble world that they felt safe talking to each other about these horrors, but then their defence was neither of them thought the other one would go through with it. And this meeting of minds meant that they did go through with yeah. it. Oh, yes, it's the toxic relationship. But let me also answer the, your question, Liz, by um, saying this. Every single murderer that I've dealt with who's gone on to commit more than one murder... Um, if you drill down very clearly into what's motivating them, it always starts with a fantasy. It, it, it's never, uh, you know, you know I, there are some murders which are five minutes of madness is how I've characterized it. You know, it's just in that moment, there's five minutes of madness and they do something which takes another person's life and changes their life. But there are another group of murderers that I've worked with. And it's always about the fantasy. It's a sexual fantasy and the desire to make that sexual fantasy become part of their reality. And once they make it part of their reality, it no longer becomes fantastic. And therefore they go on 
to kill again and again. Uh, and, uh, and these were two, you know, I would suggest these are two very, very dangerous young people indeed who will need significant amount of intervention whilst they're in prison to make them safe to release in the future. Do you think there's a sexual element to this? Is there a sexual thrill that they might have got out of this murder? One hundred percent. This is about sexual fantasy. Obviously, this becomes confused and and contextualised by Brianna's being transgendered. But uh, there's a sense in which if they had killed the boy that they had first targeted, that also would have had a sexual fantasy attached to it as well. Because the fantasy isn't about the biology. The fantasy is about being powerful. The fantasy is about being in charge. The fantasy is being about so in charge and omnipotent that they can decide to take the life of another person. And often what you're dealing with when you talk to offenders who have this kind of fantasy is their belief that it's only only in taking another's life that they can have the agency that they feel is denied to them in their reality. If she hadn't found him to be involved in this, to have that knife, would she have just found somebody else? Yeah. My my own sense is that this that the fantasy and the dark web and the and the grooming that the dark web clearly uh, facilitates in terms of what she's interested in it would have meant that at some stage she would have found someone that would have been able to help her make her fantasies become real. These are very dark places that you're both going to. And this is a very, very dark case. This is something, you know, that is incredibly tragic and overwhelmingly shocking. So not only there, Liz, does David compare Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe to couples like, you know, Fred and Rose West and Ian Brady and, and Myra Hindley. He also talks a lot there about the influence of the dark web on Scarlett Jenkinson. Yeah, and we know, don't we, from talking to Professor Alan Woodward, um, the interview we did with him just before Christmas after they'd been convicted, um, we talked about how terrifying it was as parents for... Um, children to be able to get access to the dark web to download this Tor browser. And um, he spoke quite a lot about, actually, if your child has downloaded that browser, it's there's nothing really you can do to stop them accessing the dark web. He said it's up to parents, really, to talk to their children and, you know, to check on their phones that they didn't have such, you know, awful browsers and apps. But you and I know, Caroline, as mums of teenage kids, that it's so hard to keep a check on what your teenagers are doing online. You know, their mobile phone is, you know, like a modern day diary, really. It's, it, it feels like, um, you know, you're breaching their trust a lot of the time when you're asking to look at what they're doing and what they're saying and what they're um, talking about on their phone. Um, and essentially, that is what Esther Jai said in this kind of really moving interview that she did with the BBC's Laura Koonsberg on Sunday. She talked so eloquently about this new campaign she's got to try and make mobile phone companies act and take more responsibility for what our kids are doing online. Yeah, because what Alan Woodward said to us, which was pretty terrifying, if you remember at the time for both of us, was, you know, 
yeah, you've got to be on it. You've got to be monitoring them. You need to know what they're looking at online. Now, you know, he's a computer science professor. So I'm sure that, you know, he knows what to look for. He might have alerts set up on his Wi-Fi. They know what's coming in and what's going out on, on the various connections. I don't know about you, Liz, but I don't know. No, most ordinary people don't do things like that, do they? And what Esther Jai has been talking about is, um, from her experience with Brianna, is that from about the age of 14, Brianna became very protective about her phone and... You know, it was um, very difficult, she said, to ask her what exactly she was doing on that phone. And I think that's an experience every parent will understand. And you can't say, no, you can't have one because then, you know, they're, you know, not like any of their peers. You know, it's such a pertinent and tricky conversation. And now the sentencing is over. Esther's talking about campaigning for some new legislation, which effectively will ban children under 16 from having mobile phones capable of downloading social media apps like TikTok and Snapchat, which is, you know, Snapchat was obviously the way a way that Scarlett Jenkins and Eddie Ratcliffe communicated and plotted Brianna's murder. And also she wants specialised software on every child's phone, which will flag up keywords, dangerous words, dangerous search terms to their parents whose software, phone software will be linked to theirs if they do try and start searching and looking for things that they shouldn't be online. Yeah, what she's talking about, and we'll hear a clip of her in, in a second, is you know, giving kids, actually, and parents, a bit of extra help around what they're seeing and what they're accessing. And I think the other thing that was really key for me in what she said, which was, again, Professor Woodward referred to, was the minute you start searching for certain things, many of them, at some points we know now, negative things, horrific things, the algorithm keeps sending them to you. And we'll just play a little bit of what she said now. So I'd like to see mobile phone companies take more responsibility. It's so difficult for parents now to safeguard their children. They carry a mobile phone in their pocket 24-7. It's a smartphone with the internet, with all of different social media sites and it's just so difficult to keep on top of what they're doing. So we've set up a petition which we'd like all families and parents to back and sign. We'd like a law introduced so that there are mobile phones that are suitable for under 16s. Mm -hmm. So if you're over 16, you can have an adult phone, but then under the age of 16, you can have a, a children's phone, which will not have all of the social media apps that are out there now. And also to have software that's automatically downloaded on a parent's phone, which links the children's phone. Mm -hmm. um, and it can highlight keywords. So if a child is searching the kind of words that Scarlett and Eddie were searching, it would then flag up on the parent's phone. There is software already available. I know that schools are already using this kind of software so that if students do type something in that's concerning, it then flags up to the teachers. I, f I feel like it it's such a simple solution and I don't understand why we haven't actually done something like this already. Yeah, and just to pick up there as well, she also goes on to say what you flagged earlier, Liz, we know what Scarlett Jenkinson was looking at via this Tor browser. Um, horrific images that, that just would be traumatic to most people. But Esther also talked about, as you mentioned earlier on, Brianna 
she said that Brianna was vulnerable, that she didn't always know what risky behaviours were, that she put herself in vulnerable positions at times. And one of the things she's now talked about is that Brianna was accessing pro-anorexia sites online. And Esther, as a loving, caring parent, wanting to do the best for her child, didn't know anything about it. So when, when Brianna was, was with us, she struggled with her mental health and she was, um, I found out after she was actually on certain social media sites, on pro-anorexia sites and self-harm sites, which I wasn't aware of. When Brianna turned around 14, it was so difficult to monitor her phone because she wanted that trust and she was, um, she was very protective over her phone. If she couldn't have accessed these sites, she wouldn't have suffered as much. And like I said, they carried this phone around 24-7 and it's just, not, it's just not doable for a parent to monitor that. No, and, you know, um, she actually talks about, you know, this lack of regulation, which has been in the news, obviously, with Mark Zuckerberg appearing before the US Senate. Parents in America are, are having the same problem, accusing Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and WhatsApp being culpable for allowing children to look at these images and see this harmful um, information online. And Esther, too, has said, you know, the Internet's like the Wild West and these companies need to stand up, take some action and stop thinking about the money and making these vast profits, which at the expense of protecting our kids and future generations. It's quite out of control. I, I heard somebody once call um, like the Internet the Wild West and that's basically what it is. And we've kind of got our children, we threw them in, in the deep end of it. And um, yeah, some, something needs to change now. And I do feel like we, we are potentially at a tipping point where we can make things better. So that's it for today. I'll be back with Jack tomorrow with the latest from the Old Bailey on the trial of Constance Martin and Mark Gordon. Don't forget you can follow us on X at The Trial Podcast and contact us, the trial at mailmetromedia.co.uk. You can leave us a comment on Spotify or even send us a voice note on WhatsApp on 07796 657 512. Start your message with the word trial. See you then.